Welcome to the latest IPSE podcast. We are IPSE, the Independent Press Standards Organisation, the independent regulator of the majority of the UK's newspaper and magazine industry. These podcasts are really for anyone who's interested in newspapers, journalism, the media and how it's regulated and of course IPSE's work. Um, my name is Vicky and I'm going to be your host today and I'm joined by Head of Complaints, Bianca Strowman, and we're going to talk about photography. So welcome Bianca. Hi Vicky. Let's first of all talk a little bit about how photography is important for newspapers, um, particularly in terms of communicating news. Yeah, I think photographs can be really, really powerful. Um, you know, a visual representation of a news story um, is something that, that can convey the reality of it in a way that often words can't. Um, and I think that the enhancement that a photograph can offer to a news story really, really can't be um, underestimated. They're great as well for um, conveying emotion and sort of really making somebody feel like they understand the situation. I mean, thinking back over the last kind of 10 years or so, I can certainly remember some very powerful photography on the front pages. So I'm thinking about 9-11, the image of the prisoner being tortured at Abu Ghraib. Um, Kind of more recently, uh, the front pages which featured images of Ireland Kurdi, the drowned toddler on the Italian beach. Um, I think these pictures were kind of incredibly controversial, powerful images, but ultimately... I think one that did contribute to a change in attitudes towards refugees in this country. Um, I'm mentioning this image in particular because we did receive a number of complaints at the time. And interestingly, a number of newspapers spoke about the decision about whether or not to publish these images. And I think we should say um, that here we're talking about kind of two different images. So um, the first one Featuring, it was a police officer um, holding the child, um, and you could you couldn't see the child's face. Um, the police officer was standing on the beach in the waves, holding the child's body. And then there was another photograph which fewer publications used, um, which showed the child's body lying on the beach. Um, it was obviously a very distressing and powerful image, as in fact was, you know, the, the image of the police officer with the child that was more widely used was also really, really powerful. Um, and I think you're right that it had a huge impact on the way that people reacted to the refugee crisis. Obviously, people have been reading about it for a long time, but seeing that very human stark image really made people think about what what the plight of refugees really meant um, and, and changed a lot of opinions. And as you say, um, some newspaper editors spoke about making the decision to publish that photograph because it was controversial, both images, and particularly the, the one showing the child lying on the beach. The Guardian editor-in-chief, Catherine Viner, was quoted at the time as saying, it was very important to us that we placed Ireland's death in context with some serious reporting about what happened to him and the broader picture of current political and social attitudes towards refugees across Europe, particularly in Britain and Germany. And it's quite unusual for an editor to come out and explain why mm. they used a, a particular photograph. Um, and the Independent published the, the image of the, of the child on the beach on its front page and spoke widely about how it weighed up whether to use that particular image or not. As you say, we we got a couple of complaints about the use of this picture. Um not as many as, as you might think, considering some of the controversy about it. I think a lot of people understood why it had been used and, and 
why it was so powerful. Um, but we weren't able to take complaints forward um, because the editor's code doesn't cover taste and decency, and we didn't get any complaints about anybody connected to the from anybody connected to the family. Sure, I mean certainly for me, those images kind of were very emotive. Um, you mentioned the editor's code, so let's kind of take a second just to kind of briefly talk about that. So the editor's code is the set of rules which all publications that are regulated by IPSO must follow. Um, it's clear that a lot of editorial decision making does kind of go on around photography from what you've said. Um, and it's true that the rules of the code apply to photography and to video as much as they do to kind of the written editorial content. Um, say, what what kind of things does the code say about what editors need to consider? Yeah, as you say, um, the code applies to pictures and video as much as it does to words. Obviously, some clauses are not particularly relevant to pictures, but some really are. So clause one, which is accuracy, um, says that the newspapers shouldn't publish inaccurate or misleading images. And that includes still photographs, but also videos and stills taken from videos. So, you know, pictures can be misleading and so they should be handled with care. You know, that's the flip side of what we were saying about how powerful they are. You know, they give a really strong impression of a particular situation. So so they really can mislead if if, if, um, done wrong. Uh, Clause two, which is about privacy, says that it's unacceptable to photograph individuals without their consent in public or private places where there is a reasonable expectation of privacy. Um, The concept of a reasonable expectation of privacy is something that photographers are confronting every day um, and editors as well, having to make decisions about whether somebody in a public place has a reasonable expectation of privacy. Um, It's something that particularly comes up with celebrities who will develop their careers Mm through exposure in the media so you know being on a public beach on the hottest day of the year when there's 30,000 people may be very different from sunbathing in your back garden you know a photograph of you just showing you walking down the street and what you look like may be very different to a photograph showing you engaged in a sort of private family moment sure Um, I mean we are going to talk kind of more broadly about this stuff later when we look at a few ipso rulings mm -hmm. Um, and let's also just briefly mention um, as we're talking about privacy um the harassment clause because I think you know when you think about kind of media photography you imagine these kind of scrums of photographers kind of paparazzi taking people's pictures Mm -hmm. chasing them down the street what does the code say about harassment so clause three which is about harassment says that journalists shouldn't engage in harassment intimidation or persistent pursuit and it also says that photographers should stop taking photographs of somebody when asked to desist so that's the sort of scrum that you talk about somebody chasing you down the street if you say stop it stop taking photographs of me I'm finding this distressing then they should stop and I think this is also um, a good moment to mention that we do have a 24-hour kind of harassment helpline we can help with press intrusion it's part of our work Um, if anybody ever has concerns about this then they can certainly call they can find the details on our website Um, So let's move on and look at some rulings that Ipsay has made related to photography. So I think 
I should firstly say for people who haven't listened to podcasts before that all of Ipsos decisions are ruled on by our complaints committee. So that's 12 members, including Ipsos chair, um, who is also the chair of the committee. The majority of members are independent. They've got no connections with the newspaper and magazine industry and others have recent senior experience in that industry, but they are not currently serving editors. Um, so I'm quite interested in what you said about the challenges of working out whether or not somebody has a reasonable expectation of privacy. So let's look at a couple of things that which explore this more fully. So the first is Princess Beatrice versus Mail Online, obviously someone who is a public figure. She's off Monaco on a boat um, and some long lens photographs are published. Uh, did she have a reasonable expectation of privacy? Oh, well, that's a, a simple question with a not so simple answer. Um, so when we're, obviously I mentioned earlier that you can have an expectation of privacy in a public or a private place. Um, so when we're looking at whether somebody has an expectation of privacy, you look at where they are, but you also look at what they're doing. And it's important to consider both of those things together. So Princess Beatrice as you say, was on a boat off the coast of Monaco. I think she was about 200 metres from the shore. Uh, it was a, lot, a big boat, a yacht. You could see the boat from the shore, um, but at 200 metres, you might have been able to see that there were people, but you couldn't see exactly who those people were or what any of those mm. people were doing. And the photographer was on the shore um, and took some photographs using a long lens and sort of zoom in on her. And Mail Online published a number of photographs. They showed her sort of swimming, sunbathing in a bikini, applying sun cream to her partner's back, sort of having kind of a basic with, holiday. Yeah, photos. general, the, the sorts of, you know, if any of us were on our yacht, the sorts of things <laughs> that you might be able to take photographs of us doing. Um now, the, the complainant argued that this was her private life. She wasn't, obviously, she, she carries out official duties, but she wasn't on this boat in her official capacity. It was a private holiday with her friends. Um, and the boat was anchored far enough from shore that she wasn't visible to anybody. It wasn't the case that members of the public walking past would have been able to see her. She, you know, she had, we talk about reasonable expectation, she had... A reasonable belief that she wouldn't be photographed and that she wouldn't be seen. Um, now, the publication argued that, in fact, the boat wasn't that far off from shore, so you could you could see the boat. She wasn't doing anything that was particularly private, as I say, sort of swimming, having a drink. It was an activity that's really intrinsically to do with her private life. Um, now, the committee, the complaints committee, said that she did have an expectation of privacy and that there'd been an intrusion. Um, and the long lens was important to this. It's it's not a breach of the code to use a long lens to take photographs. That's, it's not as simple as that. But the fact that the photographer had to use a long lens sort of supported the idea that she felt that people wouldn't have been able to see her. Um, mm. So without the long lens, you wouldn't have been able to capture detailed images showing what she was doing. Um, and the complaints committee said... You know, they took up her position that she wasn't performing any official duties. This was something that she was just engaged in her private life, enjoying a private holiday, and she had the right to not have um, intrusive photographs taken of her. So that was upheld. Sure. So what happened as a result of that upheld complaint? Mail Online had to publish an adjudication, um, which is what we call upheld decisions by the complaints committee. So it's a sort of a decision explaining what the article was, photographs in this case, what the complainant said about it, 
what Mail Online's defence was and what the committee said. So the committee saying they shouldn't have done this, this was a breach of the code. Sure. Um, so let's compare this with um, perhaps another well-known figure, uh, say Kim Murray, Mrs Andy Murray, um, entering Wimbledon with her daughter in a pram. Uh, what happened here? Yeah, so Kim Murray complained about quite a lot of publications that had published photographs of, as you say, her entering Wimbledon with her daughter in a pram, the daughter was a baby at the time, going to Wimbledon to watch her husband, Andy Murray, play tennis. Um, Andy Murray and Kim Murray argued that they had been fiercely protective of their daughter's privacy. They, you know, they didn't release photographs of the child. They didn't pose with the child. They didn't sort of attend red carpet events. And they said that attend, you know, taking the child to crash at Wimbledon was part of her private life, part of their family life. And so the photographs shouldn't have been taken or published. This complaint wasn't upheld on, because the committee said that Wimbledon, perhaps differently to a yacht off the coast of Monaco, can't really be considered a private place. It's a place where not only are there a lot of members of the public, but there are a number of members of the press and lots of photographers. And it's somewhere unlike Princess Beatrice, who who didn't know there were any photographers present and couldn't have known. It's somewhere where you expect there to be photographers, you know there will be there. And in fact, Kim Murray was entering a sort of an entrance of Wimbledon used by prominent individuals and she'd been photographed using that entrance in previous years. So they said she, you know, she should, she could have expected to know that there would be photographers there and that also the photographs didn't show anything particularly private. You could see the pram, but you couldn't see the details of, of the child's face and, you know, she, mm. she was simply walking through. So, I mean, kind of two important things I think have come up in these um, examples are that kind of your expectation of privacy kind of depends on both kind of where you are and also what kind of things you might be doing. Exactly. That's that's very true. So you could you could be doing something incredibly private um, in a public place. And we, we had an example that I won't go into in detail, but a few years ago, an earlier IPSO decision, some children were hit by a car and the photograph was published of them receiving medical treatment. Now they were on a street, it was a public street, anybody could have seen them, but the complaints committee said clearly that was an private. invasion of their mm. privacy. Um, I also want to look at um, some people that are not celebrities because, as you said, you know, celebrities and photography are kind of very intrinsically linked, but you know, we've also had complaints just from ordinary members of the public who have had their photographs kind of published in newsletters. So let's. Um, newspapers even. So let's have a uh, a quick chat about Hunter versus the sun.co.uk. Yeah, this is it's a sort of a interesting comparison to Princess Beatrice because um so Princess Beatrice was wearing swimwear and the photographs were taken of, that were taken of her and so was this complainant. Um she was photographed conversely not off the coast of Monaco but on Brighton Beach. It was the sorts of stories that perhaps we're all familiar with that the weather is unusually hot in Britain. It's the one day of sun in Britain. Exactly. And we must have a photo montage of everybody exactly. enjoying it. How do we show the temperature? We show the temperature by showing that everybody's in their bikinis and trunks in the UK. Um, so the complainant featured in one of these sorts of stories. Um, she was on Brighton Beach. Um, 
on a very hot day and a photograph was published of her. She was wearing a bikini and sort of looking at her phone or reading a book, I think. And she argued that this was private. She didn't know. She hadn't seen the photographer. She didn't know the photographer was there. And she hadn't expected for a photograph of her to be... Hmm. I mean, I, I don't think you kind of necessarily do go out thinking that you are going to be photographed and it's going to end up in a newspaper. No, you don't. You don't expect that. Um, but actually, in this case, the, the committee said it it wasn't a breach of her privacy because she was in such a busy place. So there were a huge number of people on the beach that day, the newspaper said, and also you could see from the photographs that it was very busy. Mm. And the complainant hadn't sort of tried to move somewhere where it was a bit more secluded. So she was visible to lots of people most of whom wouldn't have been, been personally known to her. And she wasn't doing anything private. She was, as you say, just sort of sitting on a beach, looking at her phone or reading a book. And the, the article wasn't sort of focusing on her. It was sort of a photograph. The point of the article was about the weather and a photograph of her was used to demonstrate the weather. Mm. Mm-hmm. So again, it's kind of the place is important, but also what you're doing Mm -hmm. is important. And also, I think it goes back to what we were saying at the beginning, that obviously we talk about the power of images for really important stories like the refugee crisis, but equally a story writing that it was very hot is not that interesting. Whereas a load of photographs showing you just how wonderful the weather was is a, a lot more powerful than probably sure. much more I mean, I to read it. We all love looking at photographs of dogs eating ice creams, for example. Um, let's move on from that. And let's have a look at another kind of privacy complaint. I mean, as we're talking about Princess Beatrice, let's also talk about Prince Andrew um, and the Daily Mail. So what happened here? This was an interesting one. I think what what makes this interesting is that no photographs were published. Um, So I'll start start by saying this. And this was um, an article talking about preparations for Prince Andrew's daughter's birthday party. The other daughter, we should say, Eugenie, Mm -hmm. not Beatrice. Um, As she was having a party at his home. Um, I think there were, it was a circus party. So there were some interesting preparations going on. And... Um, Associated Newspapers flew a helicopter over the sort of garden, it's a sort of large inner courtyard of Prince Andrew's house to try and take photographs of the preparations. Now, these photographs weren't published, as I say. The photographs actually in themselves just sort of showed people setting up Ferris wheels and those sorts of things. Mm. The family, Prince Andrew and his family, weren't at home at the time the helicopter flew over. Um... But the inner, sort of, as I say, courtyard or, or garden, whatever we want to call it, of their home is not visible to the public at all. It's, you know, they've got, they've got high walls surrounding it. You can't see in unless you're flying over in a helicopter. And so I think it's really interesting that this complaint was upheld, not on the basis that the photographs showed anything private or that anything private had been published, but on the fact that Prince Andrew and his family have a right to feel that parts of their home that are not visible to the public are private and that they have an expectation of privacy there. And the fact that the sort of concern that you might be sitting in your garden and a helicopter could fly over to photograph you at any point is something that can be, is a really... It happens to me all the time. (laughs) Well, exactly. (laughs) It it is intrusive. The thought that you can't um, get away from potential I can I can totally kind of sympathize with that kind of view but I mean I think we should also make clear you know that 
yes, Prince Andrew has a big back garden on his kind of manor, country manor. But, you know, it, this is also the case for kind of normal people as well. So let's talk about Susan House. Um, so this is a complaint from a lady whose house um, was kind of destroyed in a, uh, a gas explosion. Obviously kind of a, a real public interest in showing people the dangers of that kind of thing. Um, so what happened in this case? Exactly. So, I mean, I think that the public interest is really important. As you say, there was a, a large gas explosion and some of the exterior walls were torn off um, the complainant's house. Um, and photographs were published in quite a lot of regional and, and national papers um, where you could see the interior. So you could see inside some of the rooms of her house. And the complainant said, you know, that's private. What what the inside of my house looks like is, mm. is something that people don't know about. And in in many circumstances, she would that would be entirely true. And of course, you can't generally see into somebody's house and, you know, flying over and taking a photograph through the window of somebody's bedroom may well be a breach of their privacy. But in this case, unfortunately, because of the damage done to the house, the wall was removed and sort of anybody walking by could see in. Um, so you've got that on the one hand that this, you know, everybody can see what the house looks like. But also, as you say, there's a real public interest in just showing the extent of the damage. So thanks for joining us today, Bianca, and kind of talking about all of those cases. Um, we hope that you enjoyed this podcast as well. Um, if you're interested in kind of more comment like this about Ipse cases, you can always download the Editor's Codebook from our website. So this is prepared and published by the Editor's Code of Practice Committee. Um, and it's sort of like a handbook that sets the Editor's Code in context and highlights sort of best practice, key adjudications, things like that. It's intended to help kind of obviously editors and journalists, but also members of the public, um, you know, look at Ipse decisions and has like lots of very interesting examples. So we'd love to hear your comments and feedback on our podcast. So do drop us a line at inquirieswithaneye at ipso.co.uk. As always, the best place to go for information on us and our work is the website. You can also follow us on Twitter and Facebook. We are at Ipso News. Um, And we hope that you will join us again next time when we'll be talking about our arbitration scheme.